Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and an all-around diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because we have a lot to talk about. On episode four of My American Melting Pot, we're going to be revisiting the one-drop rule. We have two women here who lived their whole lives believing they were white, only to find out in adulthood that they had a close family member who was black. Gail Lukasik is the author of the new book, White Like Her. She discovered that her mother had been passing for white for decades. Philadelphia journalist Shannon Wink found out that her maternal grandfather wasn't who she thought he was. We're going to be diving into these women's fascinating stories, but also I want to talk to my guests about race and identity and what it really means to be black or white in America. But first, a Melting Pot Minute. This Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by Movement Media. Movement Media, media that unapologetically strives to make the world a better place. Movement Media. Welcome to 2019, Melting Pot community. I hope your year is off to a great start. I wanted to use this Melting Pot Minute to remind you of the principles of the My American Melting Pot Manifesto. And why doesn't podcast need a manifesto, you're asking? Because I'm not here solely for your entertainment. I'm here trying to change the world with each and every episode of this podcast. Plus, every activist needs some guiding principles. So here are the ones we claim at The Melting Pot. One, we celebrate cultural connections. Two, we challenge racial norms. Three, we believe in community across cultures. Four, We evaluate pop culture through a multicultural lens. Five, we think food and laughter are effective tools to start a revolution. Six, we respect diverse opinions. And finally, number seven, we wholeheartedly believe that change is possible. And there you have it, the seven principles that make up the My American Melting Pot Manifesto. You can find them written on the About page of the My American Melting Pot blog in case you want to tattoo them on your chest. Now, let's get to our conversation about the one-drop rule. So let me begin by introducing my guests. Shannon Wink is a Philadelphia native who's devoted her life and her career to telling the stories of the city and the people in it. She's the Senior Digital Content Manager at Visit Philadelphia, the city's destination marketing organization. Prior to that, she spent 10 years as a journalist exploring as many corners of the city as possible and teaching young reporters at Temple University along the way. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Shannon. Thank you. Also, we have Gail Lukasik. Gail was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and was a ballerina with the Cleveland Civic Ballet Company. She has worked as a choreographer, freelance writer, editor, and college lecturer. She is the author of several mystery novels, as well as her latest book, which we are talking about today, White Like Her, My Family's Story of Race and Racial Passing. White Like Her was named by the Washington Post as one of the most inspiring stories of 2017. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Gail. 
Thank you, Lori. So I have to actually begin this podcast because we are speaking and people aren't actually seeing us. I'm actually going to ask both of you guests to describe what you look like so that our listeners can have a visual of you as you're telling your stories. Shannon, can you start? Sure. I look pretty white. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a pretty... I never really usually describe myself as pale because I have paler relatives and family, but I, generally speaking, probably pretty pale. And I've got dark, dark, just about black hair that I've mixed some reds and purples into. And your hair is pretty straight. Yes, it's very straight. Very straight, yeah. And if people see you, what would they probably assume your ethnic heritage would be? White. Just just white. Just white, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Gail, how do you describe yourself, your visuals, so people can have an an image in their mind as you're speaking? Well, people have referred to my skin as porcelain, Mm -hmm. so it's extremely white. When I was younger, I had dark brown hair. Um, My eyes are hazel. I have white features. I look very, very white. And your hair is actually blonde now, right? Well, we'll we'll talk about that at another time. (laughs) I'm going natural, okay? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. All right, so let's uh, begin with your story, Shannon. I know that back in 2012, you were looking for some answers about your family tree. Yes. Can you t- share a little bit about what you were looking for, what started your journey, and what you discovered? I happened to be working on a grant project that allowed me to do a lot of ancestral research and also a DNA test. And I was doing it actually because we didn't know a lot of information about my father's side of the family. So I was looking for information about that. And I knew a little bit about my mother's father who had always told us that he was Native American. And so I was curious if that was going to come up at all in our research. And it turned out it didn't, but it did turn up that he is Black. Wow. Yeah. And this is a grandfather who you had a relationship with? You saw yes. him on a regular basis? Yeah. we were. I saw him several times a week. Wow. So he lived in Philadelphia as well? He, yes. They lived a few minutes away from us. Uh, he died when I was 16 and uh, was in a nursing home for a couple years before that. But so for the first 13 years of my life, I saw him multiple times a week. And did you ever even consider that your grandfather was Black? No, never occurred to me. Uh, He was very tan. I always get very tan in the summer. So does my mom. And, you know, I grew up in a pretty white neighborhood where if you had dark skin, you were probably Italian. And so I just figured I'm just a white kid who's got some Italian in her somewhere. Interesting. Gail, I'm going to swing over to you now. You wrote this book, White Like Her, which has a, it's an amazing story, but I'm going to ask you to condense that story. I know that's really hard to do, but can you tell everybody what you were looking for that led you down this path to discover your mother's racial background? Well, my journey started in 1995, and I was actually looking for my grandfather, Azima Frederick, who is my mother's father, and uh, he was my mystery man. I had never seen a photograph of him. I knew nothing about him, and every time I would ask my mother, she would give me a vague answer like, well, you have to understand my parents were divorced when I was six. 
I wasn't raised by him. So in 1995, I decided I, and you have to understand, this is before Ancestry.com. So I couldn't go, you know, on the internet and look for him. And I started at a family history center near my house. And I started with census records. And that's where I found him and his family, the 1900 Louisiana census records. And I discovered that for their racial designation, the entire Frederick family was listed as black. I had no idea. It was a total shock. I can imagine. And then you found out that your mother then, how do you describe your mother's racial heritage? Well, my mother is mixed race. And as it turns out, my grandfather was as well. But you have to remember that back in 1900, um, designating race in the South was kind of a tricky business. And if there, we, we're talking about the one drop rule. So, you know, if you were mixed race and you had at least one drop of African-American blood, then you were designated as Black. So your mom, as you say in your book, left New Orleans where she was born, came up to Ohio, eventually married your father and lived her entire rest of her life as a white woman. You confronted her about her heritage, but that didn't make her suddenly, quote unquote, come out of the closet. She continued to live her life as a white woman and never shared with you really any sense of her black identity or her mixed race identity. Is that correct? Not only is that correct, but when I did confront her with all my evidence, I had the census, I had her birth certificate, I really had done a lot of research. You know, at first she denied it, and then when I told her what I had, she she pleaded with me that I was not to tell anyone the truth of her heritage until after she died. That's That's a heavy burden to carry, and I know from reading your book that you honored that wish for like 17 years because did. she didn't die for, you know, for 17 years. I can only imagine that, you know, having a mother who is essentially, I mean, there's lots of ways to interpret her behavior. You could say she was ashamed of being black. That line you said that in the book, she said, uh, you said that she said, how could I hold my head up amongst my friends if they right. knew my secret, which would seem that she was ashamed of her blackness, or maybe she was ashamed of lying, whatever the case may be. How did that affect you in terms of how you then interpreted what it meant to be, you know, black yourself or mixed race or having this background? Did it make you feel like then it was something you should be ashamed of or you should hide? No, I, you know, it's it's a really paradoxical kind of moment in my life because on the one hand, my mother had raised me to be open to all people, regardless of ethnicity, race gender, whatever. And yet here she is saying to me, you can't tell who I am. You can't tell my secret. So I felt very split by that. But I also, in my own heart, felt very proud of it. I thought it was really a great thing. But then keeping her secret those years, those 17 long years, I did start to take on a little of her fear and her shame. It was hard not to, even though in my heart, I did not feel it. But carrying someone else's burden is obviously going to make you complicit in that in some way. Shannon, what about you? When you discovered that your grandfather was Black, first of all, how old were you when you found this out? I was in my, I was 24, 25. Okay. Yeah. So what was your reaction and and what'd you do with the information? I was not totally surprised 
because I I had set myself up for how many white people say they have Native American ancestors, so there's no way this is going to be a real thing. So I was expecting that that's not what was going to come up in these results. So in that way, I was kind of just whatever you tell me, I'm ready for it. More, I just felt and still feel like I am missing so much of this story that I felt like, oh man, I I really missed an opportunity to get to know my grandfather as an adult to connect these dots. And did you, I know that your grandfather, not only did you find out that he was African-American, but that he also had a very illustrious like jazz career. Was that something that you knew about before? Or was that something that came up in your research? And can you talk a little bit about that part of his life? Yeah, uh, he was cool. <laughs> I knew, I knew that he played music, that he was a musician, and identified himself as a musician. And I knew that he was friends with Dizzy Gillespie. I did not know that, for example, he went on a Middle Eastern tour with Dizzy Gillespie wow. and Quincy Jones, wow. and, and had this amazing career, and is referenced in Dizzy Gillespie's book and. I wasn't aware of his true fame until this project. And so what did you do with the information? Did you keep it to yourself? Did you share it with your family members? Did you ask your grandfather? Or had he he had passed already when you... Okay. Okay. So yeah, what did you do with the information once you found it out? So I shared it with my family, uh, with my mom. It's just my mom and... She's got a sister who we don't see that often, so I don't have a a close relationship with her to be able to even connect those dots. And the feeling was just sort of like, oh, okay, because we don't have any living relative to kind of make this real for us. It's just a piece of paper with some results on it. We haven't been able to take it any further with an experience. So the... The question that I want to ask both of you, which I think is so fascinating and what I'm always interested in when I say that this show, we want to talk about identity politics. You know, this is one of those things talking about, you know, what does race, what does identity, what do terms like black and white really mean? I'll go back to you, Gail. Does this information, finding out that your mother was passing, that your mother was mixed race, did it change your sense of your identity? Do you still identify as a white woman, or do you think of yourself now as a woman of mixed race heritage? How do you identify now? That is such a complicated question. And I want to start my answer by saying that I think of race as a social construct. And and I'm asked this question a lot when I do um, book talks or give presentations. People want to know, well, so now that you know this, how are you identifying? And I I always have to sort of (laughs) unravel the question and explain what I think about race. And I also tell them, you know, if I was to think about it socially or culturally, then I'm white because I was raised in a white neighborhood. I was, you know, that's where I was raised. So that's the cultural end of it. If I think of it in terms of my mother's family, I'm mixed race. And that's the truth. And, you know, in the book, as you know, I traced the family all the way back to the early 1700s in Louisiana. And all along that trail of genealogy is mixed race. And when you're looking at that, I'm also looking at 
what's going on in America at that time. And to understand what my mixed race ancestors went through becomes very transformative for me. So I'm trying to give you a full answer because I do think of myself both culturally as a white woman, but genetically and ancestral in terms of my ancestors, I'm mixed race. That's really interesting. And I I really like that you've broken it down like that because, like you said, it is a social construct, but you're culturally white. You were raised white. But if you look at your ancestry, you know, you can't claim whiteness if you are of mixed race heritage, which you are. I really like that. You said it was transformative. What do you mean by that, transformative? I've been on such a journey since I first discovered it, then my mother's, you know, keeping her secret and then writing the book and being on Genealogy Roadshow and all the things that I've just experienced. And when I sat down to write the book, suddenly history, you know, we all know our history, right? And I I knew about, you know, enslaved people, I knew about slavery, but suddenly this becomes visceral for me because it's no longer a history lesson. It's the history of my family. So that is very transformative. And, you know, in the book, I I discover, I, I knew I would discover an enslaved person. I discovered two. And Marta, my enslaved um, ancestor, when I read her manumission documents, I was furious. I had a, a gut reaction to it because that's, that's my ancestor we're talking about. You know, that's not someone in a history book. So for me, it's very transformative. And it really makes me think about race in a whole different way. I can imagine. Shannon, what about you? Do you consider yourself white? Did you change like a feeling of who you were in terms of like racially? Do you pause now when somebody refers to you just as a white woman? Like how has this, if at all, changed the way you see yourself and or the way you see your racial identity? I do. I do have that pause a little bit. I think my feelings about it are evolving, especially because we live in such a different kind of world now than we did in 2012 when I was doing this research. I'm white with an asterisk, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I don't, you know, I have this this feeling of pride about this piece of my ancestry, but I know nothing about it and I didn't experience it and I don't have a relationship with a living person to uh, connect that to. And similar, you know, I was raised white. I thought that I was white. We all did. And so I don't feel like I've, I've earned any kind of ownership of being able to say anything other than I'm that I'm white except that I also I don't want to deny this piece of myself right it's right. really complicated yeah that's really interesting because you you said that if you walked around and tried to tell people that you were black first of all you don't look black you don't experience the world as a black woman and you don't have a living connection to blackness so you would probably get chastised if you tried to claim blackness totally but if you tried to deny it people would be like oh what's wrong oh you're not you know you're you're ashamed of your blackness now like (laughs) you can't talk about you know um so it is very tricky isn't it it's not something that you can really be public about as you try to figure it out like you can't oh ianla fix my life like i'm this white person who needs to connect with her blackness right i mean it's not 
you're not going to get a lot of sympathy or necessarily understanding. Um, Gail, have Can you... Can I add something yeah, to, yeah, to please, the conversation? Please, jump in. Based on actually a personal experience that happened to me when I was at the start of my book tour. I was in St. Louis and talking about White Like Her, and I had a mixed-race audience, which was great. It was wonderful. And as usual, at the end... Um, I'm asked the question, well, how do you identify now that you know everything? And a woman, the woman who asked me the question was an African-American woman. And this was the first time, this was very early. So it was the first time I was asked the question. I was still a little uncertain. And so I said to her, well, you know, I'm a white woman with a mixed race heritage. And she said to me, well, I'm so relieved that you answered that question that way. Because if you had answered it any other way, it would have been wrong. And I'm telling you this as a member of the St. Louis Black Caucus. Okay. (laughs) Aren't you glad you answered it that way? Well, Uh, yeah, I thought later, wow, (laughs) what would have happened if I hadn't? (laughs) Well, and and this is, I mean, it's really, it really is a, um, a tricky thing to, to deal with, but it does, again, it speaks to the absurdity of racial categories and that they really were invented for the purposes of keeping certain people in power and certain people disenfranchised. And as our world gets browner and browner and more mixed, it's very hard to keep these racial categories as our system of categorization of human beings. So um, I want to ask both of you also what the reaction and responses have been of friends and family members. Gail, I thought it was really funny (laughs) when you said that like suddenly your son made sense because of his coloring that you and your husband both were always wondering like where you got this son with these darker features. And it was like, oh, this makes sense now. Um, What has been responses of friends, family, um, if you have a specific kind of positive or negative, if there were any, um, I just want to hear, you know, what what other people in your close circle have been like when you found out this information? Well, you know, initially, after my mother swore me to secrecy, I broke that a little bit because I felt that my husband and my children had a right to know their heritage. So I I told them about it, and I told two very close friends. And my children just totally embraced it. Loved it. Thought it was great. My husband as well. You know, I'm, you know, we're talking about different generations now. And my two friends also embraced the whole idea. However, once I started working on the book and I was being more out there, I had some negativity. I did. I had a friend who made a rather, I thought, snide remark about slavery <laughs> as sort of directed toward me. And it was very hard to understand exactly what her point was, but it really took me aback. But for the most part, it has been positive. And it's funny, I went to Parma, Ohio, that's where I grew up, and gave a book talk there last June. And I had two cousins come who did had not known. You know, my father's family knew nothing about this. They assumed my mother was white. And they came, it was so nice, and I said, you know, what do you guys think? And they go, oh, we just think it's great. <laughs> so that was very positive. And that's interesting because if people haven't read your book yet, that your father, you said he had some very bigoted views about Black people. So that he must did. have been a little relieving to know that members of your father's family didn't look down upon this knowledge. 
Well, again, you know, you have to think about generations. My cousins are of my generation, not of my parents' generation. So I think, well, I think, and I believe, and I hope we're evolving yeah. <laughs> with, with the generations. You right, know, that definitely, we're, definitely. We're not, we're not thinking the way we used to think. And Shannon, what about you? What's been the response of family, friends, when you shared this information? And you actually, as a journalist, you put this out. You wrote an article about it. It was on. You did a radio show about it, I believe. So, yeah. what was the response? Uh, it's been almost entirely positive. Uh, a lot of my friends think it's cool and interesting that I got to do this research and that I got some answers, but still some questions. And my brother and I are are very curious and would like to do more research. We only really went back as far as my great-grandparents, and so we don't have a lot of real history there that we know about. I think it's a challenge to, for my, not just me, but my entire family, my my mother and her sister also found out in 2012 that their father and they are Black. And so to have him already have passed and to be living among this secret, I think, is really hard to kind of change your perception of a person and to live with this knowledge of, I didn't know anything about this person. And he kept it a secret for who knows what reasons from his family, who knows what pain was behind that. And that's been that's been hard to not be able to talk about it openly and to, you know, I think for my parents to have to live with this person who they knew for their whole lives and we're missing a huge, 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 you know, identifying piece of their story. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, for for Gail's story, she kind of found this out and she's the most person affected. But for you, you found this out, but really your mother and her sisters are more affected. I mean, it's their father. Right. You had 13 years with him. They had a lifetime with him. Right. So they have to process that differently. Um, I want to know, from both of you, and again, I know a couple of like little anecdotes that you guys have shared, but were there things that suddenly made sense to you guys once you found out this information? Shannon, I'm looking at you because you said something about that you get really tan and full disclosure, Shannon was a student of mine many, many years ago. And when I found out that she had this, um, that her grandfather was black, I was shocked because Shannon really has the most beautiful white porcelain skin. And if she's told me that she tans well, it, it would shock me. So tell me a little bit about, you know, how certain things fit into place, even though you would have never suspected that your grandfather was black. Yeah, so I do tan very well, very easily, as does my brother and my mom. And one of the first things I thought of when we found this out was... When I was a kid, we had a swim club membership, and there were families that we only saw during the summer. And so we had this family who we'd known for years and years and years, and and the boy was my age, and he only saw us in the summer when we were all very tan. And one day, after we had known them for years, his mother asked him to take a towel or something to my mom, and he said, oh, the black lady. And we, you know, at the time we were like, yeah, she's really tan. And there was exactly one black woman who was a member of the swim club. And so this is what his perception of being black was. 
this tan woman. Uh, and that was the first thing I thought of when we found this was like, okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, someone else noticed it. <laughs> and we were just late to catch on. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, there's a hint. Um, Gail, what about you? Was there anything that you said, you know, once you found out that your mother was actually passing, that you connected some dots that you were like, oh, my gosh, this now makes sense. Oh, yes. There were many, many things. Um, I used to think that my mother had these weird quirks. She would never go out into the sun without a hat on or gloves. In fact, she tried to avoid the sun. She uh, never wanted to visit home. I never went with her to New Orleans to meet her family. Ever. Never. She just said it would depress her too much to go there. One of the most interesting quirks was she always wore a light base foundation to bed. And wow. when I, yeah, and when I got a little older, you know, as a teenager, I said, you know, mom, how come you wear makeup to bed? Because I was thinking it's so odd. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, I'm like, well, I, the, I don't want to wear makeup to bed. So, you know, and she looked at me and with a straight face and she said, well, Gail, you never know if you'll get sick in the middle of the night. And when they come with the ambulance to take you to the hospital, you want to look your best because you'll get better treatment. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, that was her story. And, you know, when I was young, I bought that. Later on, I started thinking, this doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, I mean, you know, I actually hear that story and I hear two things in there. I hear the the excuse to wear makeup so that she's always looking you know, light enough. But I also hear that feeling like you won't be treated properly because of the way you look. And even though she right. was making it about, you know, like beauty or, you know, looking nice. I mean, that's definitely something as a black woman, there's always that, you know, we call it respectability politics. Like, like you deserve to be treated poorly if you don't do your hair nicely or look good when you go out because people are always going to judge you as a black person more so than anyone else. So you you have to look good. And so I hear I hear two different kind of things in that anecdote, Gail. So Well, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And that's exactly how my mother approached her life. Mm. About appearance was everything for her. Not just, you know, not just going to bed, just to be out in the world. Her appearance had to be a certain way. And she was very, very meticulous about it. Yeah. So when you guys, both of you, um, you know, Shannon, you mentioned, you kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, life has changed since 2012. And I'm assuming you meant that it seems that we're in a much more volatile political situation, that racism has become kind of acceptable in a lot of ways since 2016. Um, this administration has seemingly allowed people to be more publicly racist. Um, for both of you, even though you both still see yourselves as white, understandably, do you take a different perspective on how you look at kind of racial news now? Do you feel that you're somehow in a different place? Like, are you implicated? Are you more compelled to pay attention or do something? How do you kind of ingest this climate that we're in now? And do you feel yourself in it in a different way than you were either consciously or subconsciously, whether you're doing anything or not, do you feel it differently? I feel a responsibility as a human 
And I don't know if that's because of my ancestry or not. I don't think that it is only because so little has changed for me in my day to day because I don't have a real living connection to it. Mm -hmm. So it is sort of a like a, a hypothetical for me in reality. And so it feels more urgent to me, not because of my ancestry, but because it is more urgent. Mm-hmm. Gail, what about you? Yeah, I, I agree with Shannon said. I, I totally, I, I, because it is urgent. And I feel it not because of ancestry, but because of who I am as a person. However, though, and we haven't talked about this part of my story, part of my mother's passing, there was a hidden family that I was able to connect with in 2015 that my grandfather had a second family that I knew nothing about. And so his second family, we have many more people of color in that family. And so it's, you know, I I do connect with living people, (laughs) you know, there, you know, and, and we have had reunions and we've gotten to know each other because they didn't know I existed either. That's so wonderful that you do have that connection and that you have that other family. And I thought it was, um, I saw that interview you did on the Today Show with Megan Kelly, where you brought your cousin and your uncle. And I thought it was hilarious that your cousin is a filmmaker and was making a documentary about light-skinned Black women. Um, yes. And it's just, you know, what a what a funny connection that the two of you are you know, making these books and films about essentially about skin color and what can and can't happen with, you know, having light skin. I was wondering about this idea of being a racial ambassador, that both of you now are that white person who can kind of explain blackness or be the the person that other white people can talk to about blackness in a safe way because you're not really black, but you kind of have a connection to blackness. And Gail, I saw a YouTube interview that you did and I was chuckling because I saw you explaining like the paper bag test and um, (laughs) just things that the light skin privilege and these different groups. And I thought, oh my God, this is, it just, Visually, it struck me as funny because you were like, you were the representative explaining these things that, um, so I just wonder if if you have found that you have been kind of put into a role in certain ways that now you are an ambassador, like an in-between for people to explain. And do you feel comfortable explaining Blackness to other people or is that not something you like to, you know, put yourself in that role? Here's how I approach it. And let me just say, first of all, that I never expected to be in this role when I wrote the book. <laughs> this has come because of the book and, every, you know, all that. I, I, you know, I didn't expect it. So, um, but yes, I am that person. That's what happened um, when I, and I do a lot of talks. I mean, nonstop. In 2018, I gave over 22 talks and traveled around the country and, you're right. When I stand up there and talk, people are staring at me and they're thinking, she's so white. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that, I mean, because they say it to me, that you're so white. And yet I'm telling them this story. And to me as a writer, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a politician. I'm a storyteller. And when I do that, when I just tell the story, people get it. They hear it. It's got a human element. It's got emotion. 
They understand. And I've had people come up to me afterwards, white people, at least I'm assuming they look white, um, (laughs) say, uh, I had no idea or thank you for telling me that. Uh, This gave me another viewpoint on race or, you know, which is my favorite thing to hear. So, yeah, I somehow become, you know, not reluctant, but I've been put in this position of ambassador. Yeah. Yeah. Shannon, what about you? Do you feel like, especially as a storyteller, as a writer, as a journalist, do you feel any kind of responsibility or even just interest in in trying to tackle some of these issues or tell some more stories because you now have this perspective that other people don't necessarily have? Yes, I think that interest has grown, and I don't know where that line is between it being something that I'm just more personally interested in exploring and just feeling like now is the time more than ever that we need to be elevating these stories and these voices. But I do often find myself in these situations where because I am the storyteller in a group of friends who are like not, you know, staring at Twitter all day like I tend to be, when these conversations come up and they don't know what to ask or how to say something, I have some kind of answer because I feel close to and have and have read and have tried to tell these stories. But I don't, at the same time, don't feel qualified to mm-hmm. be doing that. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. constantly trying to say, like, you should read this. You, <laughs> you should talk to this person mm-hmm. and just trying to be the connector. I'm I'm also wondering so Shannon you are I mean I don't mean to get all into your personal business <laughs> but um if you had children one day hypothetically speaking what do you think you'll tell them about their ethnic heritage? I'm I know your husband is also a white man. Yes. Um what do you think you will share with them? Like will this be part of your family story now? Oh, totally. Yeah, I'm going to tell them everything and I hope that by the time that that point comes around, I will have been able to do more research so that I can answer more of their questions as well as my own so it doesn't stop with like, well, we we did this DNA test <laughs> and we found out that my grandfather is black and then we kind of stopped. I would love to have even more to be able to share with them. Yeah. And Gail, you just said something that made me chuckle, but do you feel like you have now that tendency to look at people now and go, I wonder if they're part black? Like they have something about them. Like, do you feel like you do that now, now that you know how Nobody would necessarily look at you and think, yeah, that woman is obviously of mixed race ancestry. Do you feel like you suddenly are looking at people differently now? I don't think I'm a a good judge of that. And it's funny because, again, I'm talking to a lot of people and I've had African-American people say to me, oh, I could tell your mother was passing. (laughs) I could just take one look at her and I knew exactly what was happening. And I'm like, look at her hair. I was like staring at her picture and I'm like, I see it in the hair. I definitely see it in the hair. Mm -hmm. Right. But her hair wasn't like that one. You know, she straightened it out and that's a picture of her in her New Orleans days, Mm -hmm. you know, but they would say that to me and I'm thinking, I didn't see that. So it's, (laughs) you know, it's, I guess it's all in what your perception is. And so I, I don't think I'm a good person to make those kinds of assessments about people. Though, however, having done all this research, I do know that if your family has been in the South that far back, you're more than likely mixed. More than likely, because that's just the way it worked. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So without asking you guys to solve all the problems of the world, what do you think in general 
about race? Because you guys have both kind of completely turned the concept of race upside down. You have disproven what race really is because by the one drop rule, both of you could claim it fully that you're black. You're both more than one thirty second black, yep. right? Yep. So what's your thought about like, just what do you think about race? And I'm starting with you, Shannon. Yikes. Sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you started with you. <laughs> it's a small question. But like, you know, you've kind of disproven it, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we as a society are very eager to put people in whatever tidy little boxes we want them to be in because what better way to feel better about yourself or to project yourself as deserving more than to create a description of yourself or someone else that allows you to make distinctions about people. So yeah, I mean it's it's a construct, but at the same time we can't we can't just blow it up and say, well, this isn't a real thing because we've created some pretty real problems about it. And so how do we solve the problems without acknowledging the constructs that created them? Mm-hmm. Gail, what do you think? Well, I think that was an excellent answer. On my end, yeah, I don't have a solution. My way of contributing and trying to you know, help us move forward is just to keep the conversation going, to keep talking about it and having it be out there. And that's my way of doing it and continuing, you know, have the book out there, have me maybe write some more pieces about it, appear wherever I can. That's my way of doing. And if people listen, if if we're talking, you know, a lot of times when I give talks, people in the audience will end up talking to each other, you know, of different races and sharing their stories. And I just, you know, as the teacher, because then I'm the teacher, I just kind of step back and let that conversation happen. Maybe you and Shannon should go on tour together. (laughs) The White Black Women's Tour. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I think that would get people butts in seats. That's great. (laughs) Um, My last question for both of you is simply, what lessons do you think this journey has taught you beyond race and identity? Certainly a lot about family secrets, (laughs) but more just about, and it's something I've been paying a lot of attention, attention to as friends start to have kids and as I start to think about starting a family is just talking and acting openly and actively about inclusivity. So I think I'm coming out of what I hope is the last generation of just identifying people with simple language and simple words and this person's white and this person's black and you're racist or you're not racist and it depends on what word you're allowed to use in your house versus just having very, very open, honest conversations about being inclusive of people. You know, I came from a house where... There was no racism, but there was also no discussion about, like, we need to include everybody. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I I am very consciously thinking about that and trying to move in that direction myself. Gail, what about you? What has this journey taught you beyond, you know, talk about race and identity? Well, I feel like I'm still on the journey for sure and still evolving and, and learning as I go along. I think to be open to what I'm going to hear or learn and share. And that's what I'm trying to do. Well, thank you, Shannon Wink. And thank you, Gail. I want to ask you both to tell our listeners 
how they can maybe find out more about your work, if you're going to write any more books, Gail, or to hear more about how you're going to spread the word about White Like Her, tell everybody how they can find you and keep up with you. Yeah, you can go to my website, you know, just Google my name, www.gaillucasic.com. And also I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. And if you're interested in my book, you can get it at Amazon, White Like Her. Any of those venues would work. And we'll, of course, have a link to Gail's website and to the book on myamericanmeltingpot.com. And Shannon, how can people keep up with you and your journey? They can find me on Twitter at Shannon A. Wink. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you again both for being here on The Melting Pot. And I think your stories will definitely get people talking and continuing the conversation about race and identity. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. I really appreciate Gail and Shannon sharing their stories. And I think it's really interesting how they both figured out a new way to define their racial background. They both said they saw themselves as culturally white, but with a mixed race ancestry. Now, that label wouldn't fit into any tidy identity box, but it's way more accurate than calling themselves black. Even though our laws say a person only has to be 132nd black to claim African-American ancestry. But as both women explained, they were raised in white environments, they look white, and they don't have the lived experience of a black person. So they can't just be black because their DNA says so. But still, it's clear from this conversation that Gail and Shannon have been changed by their discoveries. They can't just be white anymore. In their own ways, they have chosen to be a voice for challenging racial myths and stereotypes. Just by existing and sharing their stories, they force people to reconsider what it means to be black or white in America. How do you define blackness? What do you think it means to be white? Tell me what you think about racial categories on the My American Melting Pot blog, or share your thoughts with me on social media. I'm at Ms. Melting Pot, that's M-S Melting Pot on Twitter. And we have the My American Melting Pot Facebook page where you can leave me a comment. To read a recap of this episode, visit MyAmericanMeltingPot.com. We have a link to Gail Lukasik's website, as well as to her book. We also have links to Shannon's story about her family and some other resources on race and the one-drop rule. If you haven't already, please consider leaving a rating or review of the My American Melting Pod podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The more ratings we have, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. Episode four of the My American Melting Pod podcast was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty and Tyler McClure. Our assistant producer is Darian Muka, and our theme music is composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening, and remember to always live your life in color.